eyes on me. Cause I'm young, black, and gifted, Nina, all eyes gon' see. If you swung back when faced with a challenge that's meant to break you and balance scales, you ain't average. Now throw your hands on three. Gon' put them up for black magic. What's good, family? Welcome to another episode of the Black Men in Medicine podcast. I am your host, Corey Gatewood, bringing you that white coat trip. Today we'll be sitting down with one of the best to ever do it in a white coat and Dr. Quinn Capers IV. Dr. Capers is an interventional cardiologist, which is a feat in and of itself. Both time, he has added many, many accolades to that title. If I went through them all, that would be an episode in and of itself. But just to name a few of his more recent accomplishments, in 2020, he was the recipient of the Exemplary Leadership Award of the Group on Diversity and Inclusion from the Association of American Medical Colleges, also known as the AAMC. In 2019, he earned Ohio State's Highest Teaching Award, the Professor of the Year. He has presented talks nationally ranging from Stanford University to John Hopkins on implicit bias, imposter syndrome, and of course, the dire need to increase the number of black men in medicine. So truly, truly coast to coast with it. He has recently made his move west to the University of Texas Southwestern, where he will serve as Associate Dean for Faculty Diversity and the inaugural Vice Chair for Diversity and Inclusion, in addition to saving lives. So, Dr. Capers, I know our audience is eager to meet the man behind the legend, so let's jump right in. We all know you've had a formidable impact on the field of medicine, but bring us back to the beginning, that moment when you knew you were going to be a doctor. I really never wanted to be anything else, so it really even goes back before uh, high school for me, uh, wanting to be a doctor. Um, I don't know if it was a TV show I saw, but but just really that was always there, that I wanted to be that doctor that kind of walked in and, and helped people and calmed people down uh, in urgent uh, situations. Uh, so uh, uh, I, one thing that became clear to me, even at that very young age, that, okay, if you want to be a doctor, then you have to be uh, good at science. Uh, and then it, it just turned out perfectly because when we started studying science, I was like, I really like this. So that, uh, that went uh, really well for me. One thing that, that did uh, bother me a little bit, though, is that I always loved career day. And career day, in both in elementary school and high school, you get to school, and I will be excited about it for weeks to come. And in the different classrooms, there will be a sign outside the classroom. You know, business, law, you know, the different professions. And whenever it said health or medicine, I got excited. So um, uh, what bothered me is, is on career day, I would go running into the health and medicine room wanting to see a doctor, a real-life doctor. Uh, and it was always, and this is n- nothing uh, negative meant about uh, our allied health professions, but it was always somebody in the profession other than a physician. So it would be uh, a pharmacist or an x-ray technician or a nurse or something like that. And that, that bothered me because uh, I always felt like it was either the school or the school system's way of saying, Nobody here is going to be a doctor. You know, it's not. We don't really need to get a doctor in here. You know, right. but these kids, you know, it would be good if they if they can become a, a nurse's aide or a respiratory therapist or something like that. Nothing uh, against respiratory therapists or nurses' aides. We need them. We need them uh, badly. But uh, but for somebody who wanted to be a physician, uh, to have that year after year after year on career day was uh, was disappointing. So it was like growing up in a in a situation where. Although I felt like my mission was to be a doctor, that the, the, the school was saying, okay, calm down a little bit, you know, maybe, you know, maybe a nurse or maybe an x-ray technician, uh, but not a doctor. Absolutely. I'm glad you brought up that issue of exposure. It's a core problem of the lack of diversity we see in medicine, for sure. Um, I personally didn't see my first black physician until I was at Stanford. Shout out to Dr. Leroy Sims. You know, prior to meeting him, I had thoughts of being a doctor um, or some form of allied health, but it wasn't until conversations with him that really cemented this idea into an aspiration, you know, like fueling that fire. Let's go chase that white coat drip. So, you know, knowing these, knowing how significant these impacts can be is one of the reasons I started this podcast. So students in academic situations like you just described from single parent households, just like me, or living in an area like where I grew up in the inner city of Boston. This platform is to connect these students with physicians that faced and overcome similar circumstances. 
So speaking of which, tell us about where you're from and where you grew up, Dr. Capers. So I'm from Dayton, grew up on the west side of Dayton, which is the black side of town. Public schools, I'm a public school kid. Uh, the schools that my sister and I went to, they weren't using this technology uh, or terminology then, but if they were using the terminology that they use for schools now, uh, the schools that we went to would have been what they called uh, academic emergency. Most of the kids were on free or reduced lunch. The high school I went to, probably uh, less than 25% of students went to college. But we didn't know that. We were just trying to do the best we could in school. Looking back on things now, clearly you were able to be resilient in your quest to become a doctor. But as you were going through the process, stacked up against these odds, one, how did this affect your confidence, your mentality? And two, can you drop a few gems about your navigation process or things you considered to set yourself up for success? Uh, it didn't bother me uh, to the point of, of making me want to do something else. I just knew that, you know, this was going to be uh, something where I might be swimming upstream. So uh, uh, then it came time to, in high school, start thinking about colleges. And in college, one thing I knew in elementary, in uh, high school, was that in college, it would be good if I was at a college that had a medical school. Mm -hmm. And I always had, uh, from the time I was young, a sense of, racial justice, or really racial injustice. Right. I would read about uh, injustices done to black people, and it would make me really angry, and I always wanted to be somebody who did something about it. Uh, in fact, a, a funny story, I've got one of my very best friends uh, from high school. I remember in English class, uh, one day of the week, we would write an essay, and the teacher would just give us a prompt, like, okay, write an essay about this. Somehow, I always managed to make my essay about something about <laughs> racial injustice, uh, and my friend, he used to tease me about that, like, man, will you please lighten up? And I'll give you an example. One time she said, free time, write about whatever you want to. And, and people were writing things like uh, about my favorite TV show or uh, um, how to use uh, the new blender that we got to make a milkshake, things like that. And I wrote about, you know, Nat Turner's slave rebellion. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and I remember I showed it to my boy because then we would trade and, you know, you have to read each other's paper. <laughs> And he was like, of course, Quinn, you know, wrote about some black radical thing again. But that was just in my heart. And so for me to put those together, to be a physician, but also somebody interested in, in, in racial justice or trying to do something uh, to, to help uh, people that have been oppressed, uh, right. that, that to me was a natural. So when it came time to college, I knew I wanted to go to um, an historically black college. I, I actually had a list of things that I considered a college would have to uh, uh, satisfy in order for me to want to go to that college. I said, it's got to be a predominantly black college. Mm -hmm. It has to be in a major city because I was coming from Dayton, Ohio, small city. I, I wanted to be in a big city now. Right. Uh, and it had to be a college that had its own medical school and hospital. Gotcha. Uh, what I didn't know at that time was that that had narrowed down the tens of thousands of colleges in the USA to exactly one. <laughs> There was only one college that fit that definition at that time. Wow. Howard University, which had its own medical school and hospital and is in definitely a major city, Washington, D.C. Man, I can't believe there was just one school after you narrowed it down. Uh, what about Morehouse or Charles Drew? This was before Morehouse. Gotcha. Um, uh, Meharry uh, was a medical school, but, but you may or may not know, Meharry does not have an undergrad associated with it. It's, not a, it's really just a health sciences uh, campus. Right. Uh, and the Drew UCLA program was just in its infancy, uh, too. Okay. So, uh, so and, and, though, and Drew UCLA wasn't a, a black undergraduate. So, really, it all came down to Howard University. Once I found that out, I was just sold uh, on Howard University. And um, my mother was nervous because I had done well enough on the PSAT. Remember uh, that one? That's the test you take in your junior year before the SAT. I had done well enough on that that I got a lot of attention from colleges and was getting letters by the brown paper bag, grocery bag full of letters from colleges uh, of trying to recruit me to their college for academic reasons. Right. I, I opened none of them. And my mother was really nervous about that because I was waiting for Howard University. So uh, I would get home, check the mail. There would be all these letters from all these colleges, and I didn't see Howard University. And um, um, uh, it just, it, it never came from Howard University. So my mother was like, listen, you know, these schools really want you. Some of them are talking scholarship. You better answer some of these letters. And I was like, no, I'm waiting for Howard University. So it got down to the point, uh, and this is, this is, you know, I, I have to tweak my undergraduate alma mater, Howard University, a little bit for this because 
Uh, I obviously had done well enough on this test that all these colleges are sending me letters, and not one from Howard University. So this shows you that I'm a first-generation college student. I didn't know anything about <laughs> applying to college, or I didn't know, for instance, that the college, they don't get their ACT directly from you. They get it from the college board. But I didn't know that. So I took an envelope uh, and I took my SAT score, my PSAT score that obviously was impressing all these other colleges. And I folded it up. It was the only copy I had. And I put it in an envelope uh, and I took my it was my, I think, third quarter report card. And I folded that up, put that in an envelope and just sent it to Howard University. But in two weeks, I got a letter from Howard University asking me to apply. Hey. Um, uh, so so uh, uh, Howard, we got to do better. There's talent out there. And the other colleges know about them. So anyway, I finally got that letter from Howard University, and I filled out that application and sent that in, got accepted, and was so happy. And so off to Howard uh, I went. But I knew I wanted to be, because I love black history, I wanted to be at a college where some of the people I'm reading about in black history have been there, have walked those halls or are the professors, but also at a, at a place that, that had a medical school. I thought that would be important. Drop in gyms. Now, that's a man on a mission for y'all, ladies and gentlemen. Love to see it. But I guess if I sit back and think about it, I had a very particular focus as well, which was a strong health science program, not necessarily a doctor, because I wasn't thinking about becoming a doctor that early on, but definitely a strong health science presence along with a Division I football program. So those were the two things for me in Stanford Fit the Bill, and it was everything I could have imagined and more. Uh, but how, how about for you, you pulled up to Washington, D.C. from Dayton, Ohio, ready to walk the halls of grace like our auntie and vice president Kamala Harris, amongst others. Was it everything you expected? It was everything I wanted. Uh, really uh, just uh, one of the best decisions I ever made. And uh, I met my wife there. Uh, that's one of the reasons it's one of the best decisions I ever made. Of course. Uh, but uh, also, uh, my wife and I will still joke about this, uh, and you might have heard me say this, but of course, like every college, there were several options for cafeterias. There was a cafeteria in the dorm. There was a cafeteria in the main student center. And there was, of course, the hospital cafeteria, which was a part of the medical school complex, medical school, hospital, the hospital cafeteria. I took all my meals. I ate all my meals in the hospital cafeteria because down there I saw walking around in white coats, medical students and, and, and physicians. And to me, that was, uh, you know, my wife teases me like, you know, do you think the meatloaf tastes better down there or something? <laughs> it's the same meatloaf. But, but to me, uh, just looking at, I saw black uh, surgery chairs and internal medicine chairs and psychiatrists. I saw the medical students. And that was just so inspiring to me. Right. So, uh, so that's one of the reasons that going to Howard really was, was, a, was a, a fantastic decision for me and, and one that I'll always pat myself on the back. That Quinn, that was a really good decision. So I imagine that the sentiment is mutual with Howard being able to associate themselves with such a renowned physician and the great things you've been able to accomplish since leaving that institution. In terms of deciding the next chapter, that being medical school, were you just as regimented on this selection process as you were for your undergrad? When it came time to um, apply to medical school, uh, I applied uh, semi-widely. But I had a strategy, some safe schools. I was still an Ohio resident, even though I was attending Howard University. So I applied to some state schools in Ohio, Ohio State University. Uh, I applied to uh, Wright State University in Dayton. Um, and I applied, of course, to Howard. I applied to Temple. I applied to some places out on the West Coast because one of my best friends was from California. And so we said, well, maybe we go to, to school together out in California. Um, but uh, Howard uh, University... Uh, was just a tremendous opportunity for me. I, I had such role models there uh, and really did enjoy that. So uh, I chose to come back to my uh, hometown, not hometown, but my home state medical school, Ohio State University. It was a great, large institution with a lot of resources. They didn't have much diversity back then, but, uh, but actually having been at Howard University, having been at an HBCU, uh, I had honestly had seen so much uh, black excellence that I really didn't have any uh, uh, doubts uh, that I was going to be successful. And that's important for me. I've actually talked to, I remember I, some of my classmates, some of my black classmates at the time who had attended what we call PWIs, predominantly white institutions. Mm -hmm. They came in and, and looking back now, we didn't have this terminology then, but what we today call imposter syndrome, a feeling that 
I'm not sure I can do it, or I'm not sure if they think I can do it, or uh, 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 I'm not sure I belong here, and they're going to find out that I don't belong here. Those kind of, uh, uh, I call it a crisis of self-confidence. Right. Uh, many of them had that. I didn't have that because I'd been, remember, I'd been in the cafeteria seeing uh, surgeons walking around with their mask around their necks and talking about this Whipple procedure they just did and seeing cardiologists walking around. So I knew. Uh, and the dean of the medical school was black and the president of the university was black. So I'd, I'd been basking in that black excellence. So um, when I walked up in here uh, as a student, uh, I had no, <laughs> there was no uh, uh, imposter syndrome in me. In fact, if anything, I was thinking, I was thinking, y'all the imposters. I'm not the one that's supposed to be here. So, so, so that really did, did, did wonders for my, for my confidence. Ohio State was a, was a great place to learn uh, medicine. Um, uh, I had, had lots of great classmates, lots of uh, uh, good uh, faculty, and um, uh, I really enjoyed it. Thanks for sharing a bit about your experience with these institutions and your thought process behind selecting them. This journey has a ton of moving parts, as we know. Uh, so it's always helpful to hear about someone's journey, especially when you're first generation on a pursuit to be the first in your family. So um, thanks for doing that, Dr. Capers. But another important question that arises as you enter medical school is how to choose a specialty. You chose interventional cardiology. Uh, when did this magic moment happen for you? Here, So I was actually hooked on being a heart doctor as a high school student. So when I got to medical school, I already knew that I wanted to be uh, a, a heart doctor. And that's interesting because we know now uh, we uh, survey students. You got the survey, too. You might not remember it because it was a long time ago. But your first week during orientation week, you fill out a questionnaire. And one of the questions on that questionnaire for new medical students is, you know, what field do you think you want to go into? You'll have that same questionnaire um, uh, probably sometime before you graduate asking you the same thing. And what we have found is that about 70% of medical students change their mind about what they want to go into. So they actually, what they actually go into is different than what they thought they wanted to go into as a first-year medical student seven out of 10 times. Uh, but not me. I was one of those three out of 10. I came in knowing that I wanted to be a heart doctor. And uh, four years later, it was, yes, I still want to be a heart doctor. So I got some good uh, uh, cardiology, and really was a good place to learn uh, medicine uh, here at Ohio State. And uh, I knew when I left that I wanted to go somewhere where I was going to be taking care of a diverse patient population. At that time, when I was a medical student here, the, the population was not that diverse. But this was giving me some insight into the important, how important it is for the patients to see somebody that shares their culture. It's funny that you bring up that survey because I certainly don't remember taking it, but I have changed my mind quite a few times since entering medical school. So I'm definitely on that 70% side. In regards to taking care of patients with similar cultural experiences, can you recall one of those times that left an impression on you? I, I remember a few times when even though I was the third year medical student on the team, which is the person that's the lowest on the totem pole on the team in terms of decision making, you're there to learn. You're not really making any decisions. Uh, there are several people on the team that are outrank that third-year medical student. But there were several times when the whole team walked in to see the patient. And if the patient was a black patient, this happened to me several times. After discussing things with the patient, and I'm standing there really not saying anything. You know, I'm a third-year student. And as we walked out, more than a few times, that black patient said, hey, hey, you, come here, come here. Let me ask you something. What do you think about what they were just saying? You think I should, you think I should have this operation? Um, um, and they trusted me, even though, really, I didn't know anything at that time. I was a third-year medical student, but they saw, okay, so he's, he's one of my community. Uh, and, and if he says it, then I really believe it. And that, that really made an impression upon me. So uh, I was missing at Ohio State. The one thing that was missing, it was a great medical school, was a diverse patient population. I knew I wanted that. And so when it was time to choose an internal medicine residency, which you have to do as a precursor to studying cardiology, I knew I wanted to be at a place that had a diverse patient population. Just as some background for the audience, your third year is where you begin your clinical rotations. So that's where you begin more of the practical learning and seeing patients on a day-to-day -day basis. But to your point, Dr. Capers, 
I've had a similar experience where I've had minorities wait to ask their questions or express their concerns. Once I circle back in the afternoons or later in the morning by myself, I've always been an advocate for diversity in medicine, but to witness it firsthand has further emphasized that point. You know, diversity does save lives because some of those questions and concerns hold valuable weight in how we move forward with that patient's care. But you were saying that diversity drove your residency choice. Where did you end up training? I chose Emory uh, in Atlanta. Uh, And one of the wonderful things about another great choice, another inspired choice, and one of the things that I really enjoyed about being at Emory was that there were several hospitals, and this is something you, you, you you might want to think about. There were several hospitals in Emory's system. They had a university hospital in Atlanta, which kind of caters to the well-heeled. Everybody there had insurance. Um, in fact, at one time, about the time I got there, Emory University Hospital didn't really even have uh, an emergency room. And as you know, the emergency room is usually kind of, that's the front door to the hospital. That's how most people, maybe 70%, get in the hospital. Um, but it's a front door to the hospital that's wide for the whole community to come through. Well, Emory didn't have that. Um, the patients filling the beds at Emory University Hospital had private doctors. So if, if you were my patient and you called me and described some symptoms that I thought uh, required you to be in the hospital, I would just make a call to Emory University Hospital and then you would just drive to the hospital and be admitted. There was no emergency room. Uh, kind of uh, uh, showing you that, that there really wasn't that kind of commitment to the community, right? Like this is almost like a country club hospital. But in addition to Emory Hospital, there's an Atlanta VA hospital that takes care of veterans. Uh, But the real jewel of it was Grady Hospital, this county hospital. Uh, uh, These days we call them safety net hospitals. It it takes care of the uninsured people. People have no insurance, no way to pay for their medical care. And uh, there are a few, a handful of really legendary, large county hospitals uh, in the United States. And Grady is one of them. Grady Hospital in Atlanta. Cook County in Chicago, Bellevue in New York, Charity Hospital in New Orleans. And so in a predominantly black city, the county hospital in that predominantly black city, uh, the patient population was 90 percent black. And just about all of them were were people who were really struggling economically. So they were either poor or uninsured or self-pay. And I wanted that, wanted that. And one of the great things about being at Emory is that I got to, uh, as a trainee, uh, we rotated. So you would do a month at the VA, a month at the university hospital, a month at Grady. And so within my three years, and then I stayed there to do more training, uh, I trained at all those hospitals. And that's something that I really enjoyed. That sounds like an amazing program and a great place to get exposure as a trainee. But seeing this disparity in access to health care, touch on how that experience impacted your role as a physician activist. With that set up, with those hospitals, you really saw health care disparities. And uh, one uh, thing that I'll never forget that I often talk about mm-hmm. when people ask me why am I so passionate about trying to end or do what I can to eliminate or reduce healthcare disparities uh, goes back to a time when I was on call as a cardiology fellow. Um, and as some background, at this time, there were two ways to treat a heart attack. And as you, know, as you well know, a heart attack is when you get uh, a blood clot in the heart artery, stopping the blood flow to the heart muscle, and the heart muscle starts to die. Right. There were two ways to treat it. With medicine that dissolves a blood clot, we give that medicine in the vein. We call that thrombolytic therapy. Or directly, by putting a catheter uh, in the artery, go up to the heart, take a picture, find the blockage, and then use the balloon to open up that blockage. Uh, but at that time, um, we used both. Uh, so there was one weekend that I was on call, I was at the VA hospital, covering the VA hospital's emergency room, and a white man, a white veteran, came in having a heart attack. I assessed him, and I called my attending physician that was backing me up. Uh, and the other thing I need to say that of those hospitals, only one of them had a cath lab where you can do the balloon angioplasty procedure that operated after hours, that operated really around the clock if you needed it. The other hospitals... The cath labs had bankers hours, 8 to 4 or 8 to 5, Monday through Friday. And after that, they shut down. Uh, But what the attendings had the authority to do, if they thought it was necessary, if they thought they needed the cath lab from any of those hospitals, the VA or or Grady 
uh, they could send you to Emory University Hospital, like on a Saturday. Say somebody had a heart attack on a Saturday, they could say, hey, we're going to send you to Emory, and we're going to get the cath lab team at Emory to come in and do your case over there. So this was a Saturday, and I was at the VA. A white man came in having a heart attack. I called my attending, and he said, well, let's get him to uh, Emory University Hospital. He made some calls, and he was transferred from the VA to Emory University Hospital to have his cath lab procedure to open up the artery directly, and then he was brought back to the VA to retire, to uh, recover. Um, another thing that's important in this story is to know that between those two treatments, the, the drug that dissolves the blood clot and opening up the artery directly, opening up the artery directly was superior. It, was, it had better outcomes than the drug. The very next night, I was on call at Grady Hospital, and a black man came in having a heart attack, a massive uh, anterior heart attack. And uh, I assessed him, uh, saw that uh, uh, he was having a heart attack, and I called my attending physician to back me up. And he said, okay, give him the drug. Give him the thrombolytic therapy. I said, okay. So we gave it to him. And one of the things about this drug is it takes 90 minutes to work. So it's not like as soon as you inject it, the, it works. You inject it. And then, you know, you twiddle your thumbs and wait 90 minutes. Well, this man was in such severe pain. Uh, I'll never forget, he was, he was kind of grabbing my white coat uh, from uh, the, the, the cart he was on, saying, and looking at me in the eye and saying, I thought you said you were going to help me. I said, I am helping you. We've given you this medicine. We just have to wait. Uh, so it was really uh, distressing for me to see him in such distress. And what would happen sometimes with that drug is you would start the drug, look at the clock, wait 90 minutes, and get to 90 minutes, and it didn't work. So, and that's exactly what happened with him. It didn't work. So now, we've given the medicine, it didn't work. Um, just the day before, we transported somebody who wasn't at Emory University Hospital to Emory University Hospital to get this procedure. Now we've got somebody who our first-line therapy has failed, so I'll call my attending back. Say, well, you know, it's, uh, it didn't work. Uh, his ST uh, segments are still up. He's still having chest pain. His artery is still closed. Um, can we send him to Emory to get a direct angioplasty? And he said, no, we don't, we don't really do that here. Really? And I said, and I, rem I, I told him, I said, well, yesterday I was at the VA, and Dr. So-and-so, we, we sent a heart attack patient over to Emory. He said, oh, really? Well, no, we don't really do that here. Um, and so but this... Poor man had to basically complete his heart attack uh, in the emergency room uh, after his uh, uh, treatment failed, even though we had uh, a more superior treatment. Uh, but that would have required uh, utilization of resources. Terrible. And so uh, he had to sit there and in front of me lose half of his heart muscle. Man, that's a hard story just to hear, Dr. Capers. Much less experience in person. But that further emphasizes the importance of our mission to increase diversity in healthcare. And, you know, it shines light on ways disparities in healthcare present itself, you know, which are not always overt. You know, sometimes it's laced in unconscious bias, you know, but even then, that's not an excuse. We have to educate ourselves for those situations and ultimately do better. Obviously, the patient didn't receive optimal care, but how did he end up? Fortunately, he survived. He did survive. And uh, as a fellow, I had a clinic, and he was my clinic patient. And he and I got to be very close during the rest of my years there at Emory. But that, uh, that I've never forgotten that. I still know that patient's name, even though it's been maybe almost 20 years. Uh, uh, I won't say it, of course, because of HIPAA. I still know exactly what he looks like. And I still remember what he looks like that night, having that heart attack. And that really bothered me and, and made me want to dedicate uh, a good portion of my career to doing what I can to reduce these healthcare disparities, that we treat people with either different economic means or people of a different race sometimes uh, differently. Um, and so, so that was, a, that was a, an important story in the, uh, in the story of Queen Capers IV. An important story indeed. Thanks again for sharing that with the audience today. But with all of the avenues you could fight as a physician activist from racial and social injustices, how did you land on diversity and recruitment? Uh, so these healthcare disparities, uh, once I uh, uh, decided that this was going to be an important uh, uh, part of my career, trying to reduce these healthcare disparities, 
uh, there, I, I realize that there's actually a literature, that people study this, people have kind of built their career about this. And once I started studying it, what I found out is that the reasons are multifactorial. And just based on what I've said already, you know, you can probably guess some of it is, is healthcare financing. Some of these are from the social determinants of health, the neighborhoods that we live in or the neighborhoods that we are allowed to live in, as I like to say. Um, so you could make a list of things that are responsible for healthcare disparities. But one thing that's on the list is a lack of diversity uh, in the medical profession. And so I wanted to uh, attack it from that angle. You know, you can, you can pick which one of these are you going to attack. And so the one that I wanted to attack that, that really seemed to fit my personality was to try to enhance diversity. That, uh, because my mind went back to being that third-year medical student when uh, the, the patients, when I did occasionally see a black patient, that they always bonded with me so quickly. Um, and so I realized that, uh, that if a patient has somebody in whom they feel they can trust, that the care will be better. And so I really thought one way to reduce healthcare disparities was to enhance diversity in medicine. And I must say, you know, not only do you increase the diversity in medicine, but you're also very active in mentorship um, once you do um, recruit said students. Um, can you talk about a mentor or did you have a mentor that was influential in you getting to where you are and the type of success you're having right now? Uh, I always try to uh, mentor I never really had, at least from a young age on up, somebody that I considered a mentor in medicine. My parents didn't go to college. Uh, so when it came to applying to college, I had to learn either from what the counselors at high school told me or from whatever I could read from this book, you know, how to apply to college. Kind of the same thing for medical school. And uh, I, wanted, I knew that becoming a physician is a very stepwise manner. And because I had done it, I knew that if you didn't make the right steps in the right sequence, then you really would have a tough time getting into medical school and becoming a doctor. So even in medical school, as a member and then president of our uh, SNMA chapter as a medical student, uh, I uh, uh, always wanted to reach out kind of one level below me. So when I was in medical school, I put together some programs where we could mentor college students. And when I was in college, we would go into the local high schools uh, and, and mentor the children about how to get into college. So once I became a physician, uh, it was about how can I uh, reach medical students and pre-med students to give them what I never really had. I never really had somebody say, listen, these are the four things you need to do. And you need to do step one, step two, step three in your summers. You don't need to spend the whole summer playing basketball and riding your bike. You need to spend the summer either studying or doing a research project. I didn't have somebody to tell me that. So I, I wanted to be uh, that for, uh, for the, the, the young people that were coming up after me. Yeah, I feel that. I feel that wholeheartedly. You know, pay it forward, lift as you climb. Those are all concepts that continue to come up on the show. And it's because it's vital. It's vital if we want to see, you know, an improvement in the diversity in healthcare. Clearly, mentorship and teaching are embedded in your DNA. I can tell you're passionate about it. I've personally had the benefit of both being here at Ohio State, and I know many of my classmates have as well. But up until this point, it seems like all of your steps, whether it's from high school to college, college to med school, it's all been very calculated. Was academia always a part of the plan? I spent my first eight years uh, in medicine in private practice, which is essentially being a part of uh, a company, a group of cardiologists that practicing medicine is all they do. And I really enjoyed that, but I missed teaching. Uh, I always felt uh, uh, an affinity for teaching. And uh, when I was a student, I could tell that I was going to enjoy teaching because I would sometimes in my mind critique how I was being taught. Like uh, somebody would teach me something and I'd be critiquing it. Like I'd say, you know, that would have been a better way for you to get that point across. If I were teaching it, I would have done it this way to get that point across. So uh, uh, I felt like I was just a natural at, at being a teacher. And I missed that in my eight years of private practice, which was 100% taking care of patients, which I loved. But I knew that at an academic medical center at a university, you get to do both. You get to take care of patients and you get to teach and train the next generation. So, uh, so I sought out a position at my medical school alma mater here at Ohio State and um, uh, joined the faculty. And I really, really enjoyed teaching. But now I really had a platform 
to do that mentoring that I was talking about to enhance diversity, because now I'm a doctor at a university where there are pre-med students, and I can help them by giving them advice and mentoring them on how to get into medical school. And I can help the, the, pre-med, the medical students on these are things you need to do to successfully get a residency. And the residents, this is what you need to do to successfully get a fellowship, if that's what you want. So, uh, so it was a, a perfect, you know, when I, when I got into academic medicine, it felt like, wow, this is, you know, this is what I should have been doing all along. Absolutely. As I've already alluded to earlier, I've definitely benefited from your transition to academia and not only through anecdotal stories, but your impact showed up in the scorecard. You won the 2019 Professor of the Year Award here at Ohio State. So clearly many of my classmates share that same sentiment. But even then, that wasn't enough. You still wanted to push the envelope, which is how you ended up in admissions. So tell, tell us a bit about that, you know, why admissions and how you got involved. Not long after I joined, there was an opening for uh, the associate dean of admissions. Uh, and, and my partner across the hall here, Dr. McDougall, uh, called me up and said, hey, Quinn, there's, there's an opening. Uh, our dean of admissions is leaving and you're getting all these teaching awards. You do so well with the students. You should apply for that. And at the time I said, my first response was, no, that really wasn't a part of the plan. Uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pre-planner. I like to sit down and, and map things out years in advance uh, and then work to make them come true. And that hadn't been a part of the plan. My plan was to come here, be on the faculty, and be the best cardiologist I could be and the best teacher I could be. Those were kind of, those were the goals. And so when he mentioned this, I initially said, well, thanks for letting me know, but no, I don't think I'm interested. But what I did and what I tell a lot of my uh, mentees to do is when You have your life, uh, your steps planned out. And then some opportunity that is not a part of your plan comes up. Before you say no, sleep on it. Right. Um, uh, And that's what I did. So I slept on it. And I slept on it for one night, and I slept on it for two nights, and I kept thinking about it. And I kept thinking about that. My thoughts kept coming back to the fact that what we all want to have ultimately is impact. We want to have an impact. So when we leave this earth... You know, we did something to make somebody's life better or or we had some impact. So I start thinking, as the person that uh, oversees the entire application and interview and selection process at a medical school that graduates 200 doctors a year, and each of those 200 doctors are going to practice medicine for 30 or 40 years, uh, and each of them might treat 100,000 patients during their 30 or 40 years, well, that has to really have an impact. Of course, as a physician, you're going to impact every patient that you physically touch. But overseeing admissions, uh, now, essentially, every medical student that you accept that becomes a doctor, that's some of your impact. So I thought about it, and a few days later, I called uh, Brother McDougal back. I, called, I said, hey, man, is that, is that position still open? And he said, yeah, it's still open. So I applied for it. Uh, I made it through the first round of interviews, the second round of interviews, and the rest is is history. I was chosen to be the dean of admissions, and that then really gave me uh, this huge platform to get across my ideas of the fact that if we have more diversity in medicine, we will all uh, be better. Can you expand upon that thought, though? We've already touched on, you know, like how, you know, the relatable effect of how diversity saves lives, but... When you say all, how does the majority students and other people um, who are not of color also benefit from the diversity in medicine? It will make our majority race students better doctors because they'll be training with minority students. Um, our patients will get better care because now all the, 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 the doctors and students will be culturally competent. Uh, and when we put diverse people together, they come up with better ideas, better research projects, better uh, uh, new treatments. Uh, and so as a dean of admissions, I was able to, to, to try to uh, impart to the admissions committee, the people who have the awesome responsibility of deciding who gets to be a doctor and who doesn't, um, to impart upon them this philosophy that we won't really be an outstanding institution unless we are diverse. And so just like we say, we want to recruit students who have done a research project. We want to recruit students who have volunteered in a free clinic. We want to recruit students with this or that trait. 
we made diversity also one of the things that we were seeking. Uh, and I'm really pleased that, 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 that our admissions committee, it didn't take a lot to convince them of that. So many of them already had that philosophy. Dr. McDougall had already been here as a diversity dean, uh, kind of driving home that message that diversity drives excellence. Uh, we had a dean that was very supportive, uh, other people who were very supportive. And so um, it really became uh, a mark of my uh, 10 years as admissions dean that, that although there are a lot of things I was interested in, everybody who knew me and saw what we were doing, admissions, uh, knew that diversity was important. But again, the driving force for diversity for me was me again in my head thinking about that list of things that can help reduce healthcare disparities. And this is on the list. So because you've had so much success here at Ohio State, can you tell us a little bit about things you thought about or things you implemented that seem to be fruitful in terms of increasing the diversity on such a grand scale? And can you touch on some of the roadblocks that you faced during this process? I think about that when I was coming up with policies on the admissions committee. This is how we're going to interview. This is how we're going to grade the interview. Uh, this is how we're going to try to reduce bias uh, in that. You asked a little bit about uh, roadblocks. Uh, there have always been, and, and still are, and, and as you know, this is a, a time where in our country, talking about race uh, really gets people's blood pressure up, really gets people's uh, heart rate up. But there have always been people who have not uh, believed in the vision that diversity enhances quality, um, and people who believe very strongly that it's a zero-sum game, that the, the, the pie isn't getting any bigger. So if you're pushing for us to admit more minority students, well, then you're taking seats away from uh, somebody else. Um, and, uh, um, but in terms of roadblocks, the people that I report to, the people that were above me, uh, were always very supportive uh, here at Ohio State, and that's one thing I appreciated. So when I uh, got uh, people on the admissions committee or people who didn't work for the admissions committee, or maybe somebody upset that this student didn't get in or this student didn't get an interview, um, uh, we just uh, had to stick with the fact that we've got a process. Uh, we're trying to put together a class, a student body that's like a gumbo with, uh, with people with a lot of different philosophies and religion and different religions, different philosophies, different race, different gender, different nationalities. Um, and we think it's going to make the whole class better. So uh, we stuck to that and, and, and we were able to do some incredible things. Amazing things indeed, Dr. Capers. Drop some numbers on us so the audience can get a picture of the kind of impact you had. I mean, you referenced that when you were in medical school, you didn't see diversity here. And now you've come back and literally joined admissions and became the gatekeeper in some regards. So paint a picture for the audience and let us know the kind of impact that you've had here at Ohio State. Somewhere around here, I have, uh, I have a document from when I was a medical student. When I was a medical student, uh, this document ranked the medical schools according to the diversity, according to the diversity and um, uh, I, I, I can probably show it to you uh, here if I, if I spend some time going through some of these boxes. And uh, at that time, there were 127 MD schools. Ohio State was uh, like number 101 uh, in terms of diversity. Um, and as you know, one of my uh, proudest moments was uh, when U.S. News and World Report ranked medical schools according to the number of African Americans, and we're number two in the nation. Uh, the last year, we've fallen from number two to tied for number four. So now we're tied for four out of 152. And those are the majority medical schools. That excludes Howard, Meharry, Morehouse, and Drew. With them, there are 156 medical schools. Of course, you're going to lose to them. But for the majority schools, 152, we're tied for number four for the total number of African-Americans. And tied for number four with UCLA. So as an admissions dean, I know, I know most of the admissions deans uh, in the country, and we're friends, and, uh, and I tease uh, my friends, uh, the admissions folks at UCLA. I said, you mean to tell me we're, we're just as successful at convincing black people to come to Columbus, Ohio, as you are in Los Angeles, California? Um, and, and we also outrank in that regard black, uh, black students compared to at least three of the medical schools in Chicago. And I tease them, too. I said, you mean... You know, we're more successful at getting black people to come to Columbus, Ohio, than Chicago. 
uh, and we have a, we have a good laugh about that. But I think we've been successful because uh, of the uh, supportive environment that uh, uh, people like me, like Dr. McDougall and others who've really pushed for diversity as a measure of excellence, that we've been supported. Um, and, and, and it's really once we started, it, it's like a, a snowball rolling down the hill. Once we uh, started to be known for our diversity, more students wanted to come here. And once more students come here, now you've got this, this critical mass of, of students who are doing uh, incredible things. And, and this, this, this project is one example of the incredible things that our, that our students are doing. Appreciate that. Definitely means a lot coming from the GOAT. But to your point, we're currently talking on the Black Men in Medicine podcast. We have a website built to connect Black men in medicine around the country and mentor young Black males into the profession. The impact you've had at OSU across the nation from day one, was this all a part of the vision? Did you know that you would have this kind of impact and things would take off like this? Um, my expectation was only to enhance diversity so that we can uh, enhance patient care and enhance opportunities for other minority students that want to be doctors. To me, it's a dream come true. I want to help others have their dream come true. So uh, uh, some of the things have taken off in ways that, no, I, I could not have imagined. So, so we've got the Twitter hashtag campaign, Black Men in Medicine, to inspire young people, speak out against injustice, and hopefully change the nation's unconscious bias about black men. Um, we've got... Uh, uh, documentary movies coming out. Uh, and one thing that's close uh, to my heart is something that we started here, just our, our Black Men's Mentoring Roundtable, uh, where we periodically get uh, our Black male attending physicians and our Black male students uh, and trainees uh, occasionally together just to, you know, just to break bread or, or just to inspire, just to uh, let uh, the young men know that, listen, um, I started out just like you. And just like I'm sitting in this chair now, uh, you can do this too. In fact, you're probably smarter than me, so you're going to go farther than I am. Uh, and, and we really hope that that uh, inspires young men. And we see with some of the things that our young men are doing, they have reached back, um, uh, outreach programs to high school, elementary school, college students. And so it kind of builds, it kind of builds uh, on itself. And so I was, uh, it was really an, an honor when I was contacted by um, a medical school leader at the University of Cincinnati with his black male medical students saying, hey, we're looking at what you, we want to do that. Show us how to set that up. And one thing I didn't talk about at our last roundtable, I was invited down to University of Florida uh, to, to give uh, a, a lecture down there. And um, they've got a, a black men in medicine quarterly roundtable as well that they started after they saw what we were doing uh, on Twitter. Uh, and interestingly, and I think this is interesting, and I, I think it's uh, something that people need to hear, uh, it was uh, the faculty member that started that was a white woman. So it was a white woman who knew that uh, their black male medical students were lonely and isolated. She saw what we were doing on Twitter, and she just sent out an email. She said, I want all the black male students to come to this meeting. And they came to the meeting, and she introduced this concept of a black male mentoring roundtable she invited the, the, the black male attending physicians that they have. Uh, at the time, the interim dean was a, a, a black man. And uh, so they kicked it off. But it started with a, a white woman. So it really shows you that, you, don't, you know, the race doesn't matter. If you're somebody that really wants to um, uh, help all people be successful, uh, it really doesn't matter. When I was that young kid going to career day and not seeing a doctor, if I would have seen a doctor in that room, that sat down and looked at me and said, Quinn, you say you want to be a doctor? You know what? I see in you some good characteristics. I bet you're going to be a good doctor. It would not have mattered to me if that was a, a white person, a Chinese person. Uh, uh, it wouldn't matter to me if it was a man, if it was a woman. Uh, just having a doctor say to me, I believe in you and you can do this, that would have, that would have really uh, uh, inflated my balloon and my ego, and that would have given me the energy to carry on. And so I, that's why I tell that story about that, uh, that, that white woman faculty member at University of Florida who kicked off their black men in medicine. Um, uh, it just shows that you just have to have a heart, that you really want to help people um, and give people a chance. As you leave behind your legacy at Ohio State, what is something you would like to see continued or approved upon as you move on to new endeavors? I, uh, I am very uh, excited about 
some of the outreach programs uh, that I see our students doing. Um, what I do know is that it's really difficult to do some of this stuff as a student. I mean, you know, it's not like a student is sitting around with free time to do all these community outreach activities. All that is extra after you're getting your work done. So what I would like to see is uh, for some of those to be given the needed support from the College of Medicine, uh, from an Office of Student Engagement or an Office of Diversity and Inclusion where a paid staff member can kind of help with some of those programs, not take it over. Uh, our students started it. Our students should lead it. When one student graduates, they should hand it off to another student. But to have, uh, you know, some clerical administrative support for that, uh, because what we wouldn't want to have happen is our students get too busy and then it just dies because the students were too busy to keep it going. Uh, I'd like to see the, the, the gatherings, the, the, the Black Male Mentoring Roundtable uh, continue and strengthen. You know, uh, we've learned through this uh, pandemic of COVID that there are some things that uh, we've had to do as an adjustment to COVID that are turning out to be things that we will probably continue uh, after COVID. One example of that are the telehealth video visits. We've been talking about that and doing it at a real small scale level before COVID. Then when COVID hit and you didn't really want patients, if they didn't have to, to come to the clinic or to come to the hospital because they might get sick, uh, the fact that they can pull you up on their phone and you're on your phone and, and talk to them or their computer or their laptop, uh, that's going to stay. You know, after the pandemic, we're still going to do a lot of that. We're going to be back to seeing patients in person. But for uh, the person that has uh, some uh, uh, mobility problems and can't come as easily, we can offer them. Well, if you want to do it from home, we can do it from home. And so in that same vein, what I like about, as you know, this last African-American male mentoring roundtable that we had, we did it virtually. Uh, and what that allowed us to do is allowed us to invite uh, a, a doctor from California to join us and a doctor from Baltimore, so coast to coast, to join us and the doctor and his students from Cincinnati to join us. So I would like to see that continue. I, I still, after the pandemic, uh, would love for it to be back in person, but maybe once a year or twice a year, there could be this big uh, webinar uh, where we're getting together with Maybe the group in Florida can be invited next time. So that's what I would like to see continue. Absolutely. I agree with that 100%. We should definitely be able to get that going. Um, but as we close out here, I just want to say thank you again, Dr. Capers, for spending some time with us today. Your contribution at The Ohio State and at large is greatly appreciated. We will definitely keep pushing the envelope here over at Ohio State to improve diversity and increase the number of black men in medicine. You heard it here first, fellas. Let's get that Zoom going. Let's get connected. Let's flood med Twitter. Let's break the internet. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Quinn Capers IV. We did that. If you want to find out more about what we're doing with the Black Men in Medicine movement, you can check us out at www.blackmenandmed.com, www.blackmenmed.com, where you'll see highlights of black male physicians holding down the mission to serve in the hospital and surrounding communities. We provide a platform for medical doctors down to the pre-medical level to get connected with mentorship, scholarships, and collaborative medical projects. We are here for change. We are here to stay. Let's get connected. Make sure you tune into another episode of the Black Men in Medicine podcast, bringing you nothing but the gyms.